Greetings, scholars, and welcome to Following the Gong, a podcast of the Shire Honors College at Penn State. Following the Gong takes you inside conversations with our scholar alumni to hear their story so you can gain career and life advice and expand your professional network. You can hear the true breadth of how scholar alumni have gone on to shape the world after they ran the gong and graduated with honors and learn from their experiences so you can use their insights in your own journey. This show is proudly sponsored by the Scholar Alumni Society, a constituent group of the Penn State Alumni Association. I'm your host, Sean Goheen, class of 2011 and college staff member. If this is your first time joining us, welcome. If you're a regular listener, welcome back. Julie Flooring, class of 1987, teaches theater and chorus at Greenville High School Academy in Greenville, South Carolina. She also works with local theaters and plays organ at churches in the upstate. Julie is a trained pianist and organist and has a rich career teaching at the K-12 level and serving as musical director for countless shows at the K-12, collegiate, and community theater levels. Julie joins the show to talk about her experiences and share her advice as a music teacher and lifelong learner. She also shares advice for involvement in theater after college from her roles as a musical director, as well as from her perspective as a piano teacher, church organist, touring performer in the Warbond show, and Penn State donor. This episode will be of interest to any scholar who enjoys music or theater and will be especially valuable to scholars intending to pursue a career or continued involvement for personal fulfillment in any of these disciplines. Her full bio and a detailed breakdown of topics discussed are available in the show notes on your podcast app. And with that, let's dive into our conversation with Julie following the gong. Joining me here today on the show is music and drama educator Julie Florian. Julie, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thanks. Glad I could be here. Very glad to have you on. And I always like to start with uh, kind of a simple question, help us set the stage for your story, pun intended here. How did you first come to Penn State in what was then the University Scholars Program, obviously now the Shire Honors College? Well, I grew up in State College, and we had a program at the high school where you could go half a day at the high school and focus on what you wanted to focus on in the afternoon. And I decided to take some music classes at Penn State and some general ones. I got to take the History of Fascism and Nazism, that famous course, as a high school senior, which was um, an amazing experience. But I was in gifted and talented in high school. And being in the arts, I didn't fit into the regular honors classes necessarily that were offered. So I had to kind of make my classes anyway, or develop a chance to work with a mentor at the high school, or in this case, go to Penn State. So then I found out about the honors program and wanted to get a be a part of that because it seemed to offer the same opportunities. I actually had something interesting because I was doing everything musically and everything at, at high school and I took my SATs, but I had to work the night before and I closed at like 2 a.m., which, you know, you shouldn't do as a high school student. And so I slept through a math portion of the SAT and then part of an English one, but I was able to catch up on that one. And I came out with 1100 on my SAT, which was not enough to get me into the university scholars program. 
as a freshman. So and for reference, right, the this was in the era when it was the 1600 that correct. many yeah. of us might have had. I know our current students, it's a different scoring system now. Yes, yes, uh, 1600. So it was 1100 and wasn't enough to get in. So that I had to prove myself in my first semester of Penn State and be able to get back into the program. So yes, I went in my first year, but I had to get in my second semester of my first year because I slept through and I didn't want to pay to take the SAT again. So I'd I was like, I'd rather work and prove myself that way than take the test. <laughs> well, if you're listening, you know, I think obviously, Julie, you graduated with honors and you've had a very great career. So it's okay to make mistakes. I think that's a quick takeaway from this, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, so appreciate you sharing that. Now, you said you were all involved in the arts and, and everything in high school and, and being a townie here in State College. I have to ask, which came first, the interest in education and then arts? Or was it arts and then you wanted to be a teacher based on that interest? Walk us through your, your thought process there. I was always involved in arts, but I was also involved in the in sports. And so I wanted to be a uh, Lady Lion basketball player and concentrated on that until uh, ninth grade. I was played varsity at state high as a freshman and I actually got rheumatoid arthritis at age 16 and was in, unable to use my right hand, which I wrote with for my junior year. So during that time, and I was in the honors program at the high school or the gifted and talented, as they say, I had to kind of make a turn from, I was going to go to Penn state and be a basketball player and do something. I'm not sure. Well, I'm not sure what I wanted to do right then, but that really made me think about what I wanted to do. And I was like, well, I like history and I like, you know, obviously like uh, music. So, and I just had great teachers. And I think that's just what made me say education. I didn't want to be concert pianist. I didn't want to be on stage necessarily. I always liked helping others. And I was in the musical at high school, but I was in the pit because I played the piano and I could play the scores. And my senior year, I wanted to be on stage. And I was like, I can finally, it's Fiddler on the Roof, lots of girls roles. I want to try out. I tried out and the director came down and he said, um, uh, we really need you in the pit. So, and I said, well, I want to be on stage. He said, well, we'll make it worth your while. I'll make you assistant music director. So another opportunity opened by a mentor, right? So he had me teaching my peers. I taught them the music. And I think that really set me on my course for being a music teacher and someone doing musical direction in theater and things like that, that opportunity, because he needed me in the pit. But I took it and went. Well, I'm glad that you looked at that as part in this. This is going to be a terrible pun, but I'm glad you looked at that as a sunrise and not a sunset uh -huh. uh, with that experience. <laughs> Yes. Uh, and like you said, it's great to take advantage of those opportunities that me when mentors open doors for you. I was going to say, as part of that classes that I took at Penn State, I was fighting through the arthritis in my hands at this time. And they started me on organ at Penn State with June Miller. And I'd never played the organ before. I was interested in it, but I'd never played it. And I found out that I could play longer. I could practice longer without pain on the organ than I could on the piano. And um, again, she was a great mentor. And I was like, oh, I'd like to continue studying with her and, and said, okay, I'll do music ed, choral, but I want to learn the organ too. And that, that came from, you know, the rheumatoid arthritis making me make choices on what I could do, what I couldn't do, what I wanted to do. So, so for somebody who can't play any instruments, what is the, <laughs> the differentiating factor there between the piano and the organ that made that one, I'm presuming, a different experience playing with the arthritis? Piano is, is actually also a percussion instrument because it is um, weighted keys that you have to physically hit 
at different uh, weights, you know, hard or soft. The organ, you press the key and whether you hit it harder or softer doesn't really make a difference. And the minute you, the second you let go of the key, you lose the sound because it shuts off the air to that pipe. And so you have to sustain. And so your hands, your fingers stay on the keys and you learn to move them around and hold the note and substitute a finger onto this one so you can move down there and play a note. And so it, it became kind of a stretchy thing for my hand instead of a percussive thing that hurt my wrist. So it, it was very much a weighted thing. But yeah, I could just play for hours because it didn't hurt. And my doctor actually said it was my physical therapy. He didn't give me any physical therapy because that became my physical therapy. That is incredible. And <laughs> I just learned something. So you listening, I hope, just took something from that too, both the literal difference there, but also like, you know, overcoming and finding different opportunities there. So that's pretty incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And trying to go back, you had said about opening doors and, and you said one of the things about being a scholar was that, you know, you had all these experiences and, you know, obviously things are a little bit different uh, from the 80s and 90s than they are today. But, right. you know, there's that core. We still have that core thing. A lot of the, the resources have expanded over time. But can you talk about what sorts of experiences you had as a scholar that, you know, you said you invested in into being a scholar. So what did you get out of it? The chance to mold my own path in my education at Penn State. Yes, I was in music education, but the program allowed me to either take a, a level of a course that I wanted to take, or it gave me the chance to say, okay, I want to go do this. I want to see what it's actually like in the classroom now and not find out at the last second. And so then they would pair me with a teacher at the university and, and they would say, okay, let's, let's hook you up with this in, in this area, whether it was music or uh, the education. They paired me up with um, people outside of the university um, that came in that made it part of a class for me, but they pulled from the community and the, res the rich resources in the state college area, which connected me with the community as a college student in a wonderful way. So I wasn't isolated at Penn State. I, I mean, it truly opened it up doors in so many ways, but they just really allowed me, the program said, okay, what do you want? What do you want to do? How, how can we do it together? And that was something that was so wonderful about that program for me. And I think that's a common thread even to today, a unifying experience, whether you were a scholar in your time or for a current student. You know, if you have ideas or you're on the fence about something, come talk to us. We can help. We can't guarantee everything, but we can certainly help open a lot of doors. Uh, I think there's a misconception that being a scholar makes anything possible. There are limitations, but uh, those limitations are a lot less than for other students. So, you know, come talk to us. We can we can try and help you. Yeah, I mean, what I've seen from, you know, following the path of the scholars program into uh, the Honors College is that just the wealth of the students' ideas and and what they're able to do and go places and do and just things that they're diving into. I'm just like, wow, that's so cool. Just, you know, following that is, has been fun for me as an alumni of the program. I completely agree as the person who works with all of the <laughs> alumni. I love it. I love it. Now, one of those unifying things as well that every one of our alumni has done, every student is working on is 
the thesis. So Julie, can you tell us about yours? What inspired you and, you know, what did you take from it into your career as an educator? So yes, back in the 80s 80s and 90s, um, choral education was focused on the choral music and I didn't learn necessarily how to sing. And, you know, it's more focused on learning the music and singing the music as, as as a group. But I didn't know that I I didn't feel that I knew how to sing as a as a vocalist to the best of the of my abilities. And so in the teaching that I got to do ahead of my student teaching, so that'd be ahead of my thesis, I was like, I couldn't find resources for vocal exercises in the school system. And I was like, we need vocalizes, you know, vocal exercises for the high school choral groups that they can teach them proper singing posture, things that are good for your, you know, vowel production as an individual in, in addition to the choir. So you could use them as warm-ups. And today now that's a huge, you know, that's in every choir program, you do vocal exercises and you learn that. But it, that wasn't the case when I was going through and I just saw a need for it. So mine was to do research and find out vocal exercises that would do that. And so researching into all different vocal experts in other universities, including ours, and picking and pulling the ones. My thesis was almost like a workbook because I had the exercises in there. So that's what it was. It was basically a choral vocalese workbook, in essence, with the research, of course, behind it that you had to do. That is awesome. So like, if you're listening and you were in chorus in high school, there's a good chance like Julie helped craft your education. It sounds like. I guess in a way, you know, it could be. It's out there. Now, I have a funny story on how it got out there, though. Finishing that thesis, okay? So, again, 80s and 90s computers. Yes, we had a desktop computer. And I had a um, a dot matrix printer where the paper has punched holes that have to ride on the roll thing to to go through. And you had the big, big old floppy disk that you saved your work on. And so I was finishing up my thesis, and I had done the draft and worked with my advisor and he gave me the feedback and I made the changes and you know like any good student I was putting it to the last minute to get it printed out before it was due so I went to print it out and the paper got off the roll wrong and so it like froze mid-print and when I went to you know take it out of the printer and all that I found that I had not saved my revisions and so I'm calling my advisor in a panic oh Oh, what do I do? And and he kind of you know talked me through what we remembered from what we revised. And I basically I had to retype it again. So now it's like it's midnight or so. And God bless my advisor for being being awake and helping me through that. So I stood over that dot matrix printer, making that paper feed through page by page. But I still had to because we didn't have the programs to put the written music into a document. So I had to handwrite it out on manuscript paper, music manuscript paper, cut those out, tape them on to the printed out thesis, and then go get it copied. Kinko's copies, 3 a.m. I am getting it copied. So I finished at 4 a.m. I had never pulled an all-nighter at Penn State. So I made sure I got to sleep for two hours and then woke up so I could turn my thesis in on time. <laughs> that was a crazy night. If there is ever a night to stay up late, <laughs> it is is getting the thesis done. So, yes. Yes. you know, I, I think we all, done, have, we all have some kind of version of that. That is, you know, I think a takeaway for any students listening <laughs> save, is like, save, save. <laughs> save it, OneDrive and on Google Docs, 
get a flash drive, yep. you know, couple versions, you know, save that, versions. save that. Yes. But, the, you know, the experience of just doing the thesis is such a wonderful thing that to do as an undergraduate. That That's amazing to me that I got to do that as an undergraduate. Well, actually, that tees up a question I had. I'm going to skip one question, come back to it. And, you know, you've shared your CV with me in advance, Julie, and you've earned quite a few advanced degrees, certificates. And obviously, if you know anything about teaching, you know, there's a a requirement to continue educating yourself through continuing ed certifications. But how did you decide on which areas you wanted to focus and where to attend? You know, I was looking at some of the schools. Do you have an HBCU on uh, yes. that you attended? How did you go about picking these places? Just walk us through your thought process for continuing education and work-life balance and, and all these good things that, you know, you went on to do after your time here at Penn State. So I, I got to do a senior recital on organ at Penn State along with my honors thesis. And I went out to Columbus, Ohio to teach my first year teaching, got a music ed job, and they forgot they hired me. So I had moved out to Columbus, Ohio, and I had the contract, but they forgot they hired me, so I didn't have a position. And they ended up throwing me into two middle schools, and I dated my husband. He was down in D.C. area, and we had met right right before I graduated at State College because he used to be in State College. So we dated long distance that year. And he proposed and we got married and moved down to the DC area. And so I got a job in Prince William County schools, teaching middle school chorus. And you have to take professional development, so many courses. And so I've heard of a course in church music, which would be with organ. And it counted because it was music. It counted for the professional development. And it was at Shenandoah University. And it was three summers of work there. And it was mainly the coursework. It wasn't really organ playing as much. It was it was how to become multi-denominational and how you could do church service in any sort of denomination. We we even did a Moravian love feast. We did Jewish services. So we we learned quite a lot there. And then I moved. So that was my certificate in church music at Shenandoah. Loved that experience. And then we moved down to Raleigh, North Carolina. I got another choral job at a, at a high school now. And again, you have to take courses. Well, I did my first choir concert there and I, there was no one to do the lights and there was no one to do the sound. And I said, well, you know, is there no class here to, to, to do that? I said, no, you have to get the district guy. He's, he does all the schools in the district. You have to schedule him for your concert. Oh, that's crazy. I may as well learn myself how to run these microphones and things. So said, okay. I went to my principal and said, all right, I'm going to be a half step ahead of my students, but it's a need and I there's an interest. Can I teach a technical theater class? I said, oh yeah, that sounds cool. So I had a great time with the students. We were kind of learning together. And then they changed the laws in, in North Carolina and they said, you can't teach anything out of your certification now. It used to be you could teach one class out of your certification. Well, now you can't. So he said, you know, what do you want to do? I said, well, I may as well go back to school and get a degree in, in theater. Okay. All right. Well, I was working. So I was like, okay, what are the schools that are available to me? And I was in Raleigh. So I had the choice of East Carolina. I had the choice of UNC Charlotte or Appalachian State or North Carolina Central University, which is a historically black university. In Durham, they had just desegregated the HBCUs. This would be the second year that they had desegregated. So I went in as very much a minority. 
I had already completed my master's of music because that was before I needed the theater stuff. I was just doing the choral stuff. So I took the classes there and got the, basically the rest of what I started at Shenandoah. So I knew East Carolina, but I didn't want to do the drive again. The HBCU was, oh, oh it's a great experience. Theater department there was very desegregated and diverse. And they worked with me like scholars program had worked with me. They said, oh, here's this class, but you teach. So why don't you do this with your students at your class instead of sitting in a classroom and and taking the class this way. You know, yes, you have to do the book work, but why don't you get the experience with the actual students? So it's funny that they work the same way. So yeah, I went to an HBCU. And then after that, that voice thing that was my honors thesis kept on coming back as a musical director in community theater. I had to help people who were not trained in singing be able to sing for stage. And I heard of a program at Shenandoah, a somatic voice work. And they had summer programs, certification programs. And so I was like, well, I loved going to Shenandoah. I'll go back up there for, you know, classes up there. And so I'm certified in the somatic voice work in three levels there. And then I was like, what do I do now? I have all these degrees. What's next? It's a doctorate. But I didn't, I didn't know what I wanted to get my doctorate in because I like theater. I like music. I like church music. And so I haven't gotten my doctorate because... I don't know what I want to dive that deep into. So that's where kind of the degrees have ended. So, you know, you've been at, you said Shenandoah, you've been at ECU, you've been at North Carolina Central in Durham. Mm -hmm. Yep. And, you know, you've talked, some of these were summer only designed for teachers. Some are in the evening. You know, is there a difference? What, any insights on those? Because obviously you can't take day classes. You're a teacher. Right. You are right. teaching classes, whether you're, you know, wherever you are in the K-12 system. What kind of, and obviously now we have things like World Campus too, for, right. uh, you know, maybe for literacy and curriculum and those kind of things. What you're doing probably need to be in person or, you know, live kind of things, but there's so many different options. What did you enjoy? What are, what were areas of that style that, you know, you found frustrating and, and could be helpful for students who are thinking about doing any kind of degree on top of working? The master's program I had to go after school, I had to drive an hour and a half to ECU on Mondays and Fridays, and then I had to do, basically live there in the summer for six weeks. But they took my Shenandoah credits, so I didn't have as much work to do towards the master's because I already had the certificate that, that met all that book work stuff. So I was doing organ lessons and theory in the summer and other you know classes that I had to be in the classroom for in the summer and then basically looking at the organ class where you, all the organ majors would come together and and learn and then the individual lessons were during oh the weekdays and that yeah that was that was tiresome there was a hardy's that knew me really well because that was my midway stop on the drive and i had to get my caffeine to make it there right after school. So um, I didn't mind the summers um, I could, because it took me back to being a student on campus because I was there the whole time and I, I enjoyed that. So if you liked being a student and liked being on campus, find a program that offers that kind of summer immersion that you could do. The after school night, if you don't have a drive, it's doable to do classes you know, after school or in the evening, but add the drive on it, yeah, it might get a little bit rough. But yeah, if you if you like being a student if, and the world campus, if you you know if you like doing the work but don't want to sit in the classroom, then yeah, that's a great option now. Absolutely, I I did my first one uh, in person in Greensboro, so not terribly far oh, okay, from yeah. where you were in Raleigh, and you know went through that. 
and I'm currently in World Campus doing one which is very asynchronous. So lots of different options out there. So, you know, figure out what you enjoy. Like you said, Julie, I think that's yeah. great advice. Do you like the in-person thing? Are you more content? Are you a relational person? Do you not mind asynchronous or, you know, do you have heavy travel in your work? You know, yes. many, many of our students go into consulting and engineering. So lots of things to consider there. So there's probably an option for you, though, if you want to continue learning, regardless of what yes. field you're in. And it's interesting because as you're teaching while you're doing it, it means a lot to the students to that you're teaching to know that you are continuing your education too. I think they look at you a little bit differently, like, oh, they're learning too. You know, they're, they're, they're a student too. And they just look at you a little bit different when you say that you're doing that. Yeah. A bit of a, a walk in the walk kind of thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, we have homework, but I guess she also has homework too. So yeah. I guess it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now you, t I want to go back to, for just a minute. You, you know, you shared, you kind of went to Columbus and they weren't ready for you. Uh -huh. And then, you know, you kind of worked from Virginia through North Carolina and now you're in South Carolina. So is thinking back on those first teaching roles, what advice do you have for somebody, particularly in teaching, but j even just generally like thinking about that first job out of school, how they can be successful? That first job, I'll tell you, in Columbus, the thing that saved me was a fellow teacher and the collaboration with that fellow teacher. So, you know, I was kind of, I was hanging out to dry by myself. I had a class that they assigned you as first year teacher in Columbus, they assigned you a mentor who would come in and even teach a class if you were having problems and they would give you advice, they'd watch you and, and then they would teach it and say, you know, did you see how this worked? Did, did this work? And she came in and she's like, just do whatever you can do to survive. <laughs> I'm like, oh dear. But part of my placement, I was in two, two schools by the time they finally found a placement for me. And that teacher at the second school, we team taught. And that made a huge difference, a collaboration. And we bounced ideas off of each other. Um, and as a first year teacher, that was incredible for me. They, they also put me at before they placed me, finally, I was with a high school choral director and she kind of made me her assistant director unless I had to go substitute for any other music absence in the district. It was kind of weird there for, for a while until they placed me, but it, that co the collaboration with her, the collaboration with the other teacher. When I went down to Virginia, wonderful collaboration with a, a fellow Penn Stater who taught band, Bill Jacoby, taught band and and you know, we hit it off because we we're Penn Staters. So that was wonderful. But we, we did a lot together and we, we even gave a recital as a faculty. But yeah, just the collaboration with other teachers is so important. doesn't matter what year it is. Um, just always being able to collaborate with other teachers and bouncing ideas off of each other, crying on each other's shoulders, um, any of that. It's, it's really the teachers that make the difference. That is awesome that you can continue to lean on them, even as a teacher, like leaning yes. on the more seasoned ones. And, you know, you brought up an interesting point that you kind of have been, you know, you might be in two different schools in the same district. You might be asked to substitute around and thinking about, you know, arts teachers, music teachers, even like engineering and, and some things like that, that some schools have where, you know, you kind of float. What is, how is that different and how do you prepare for a teaching role like that where maybe you don't have a home base but you serve multiple schools in a district or even multiple districts as like a freelance teacher how's it different it's not that different in the sense of how you prepare for what you're teaching the main difference is that it's harder to make a connection to students because they don't feel that your classroom is a home for them and 
in the arts, so many students find their family, a place that they belong, and tend to want to eat lunch in your classroom and, and be with you, you know, whenever they can, because they're like, this is my family. And so when you're floating, it's, it's hard to, harder to make those connections. You have to work harder as a teacher for them to feel that they can come to you, that they can access you. Certainly in today's technology age, it's much easier for them to access you than when I started. But yeah, you have to be very intentional about the relationships with the students and with the teachers because you're using some other teacher's room and you have to be very respectful of that. That is really good insight. And another thing I would love to hear your perspectives on, Julie, going back to your thesis topic, you kind of helped get a, a change going in the choral education with the different I, I'm not even going to pretend to totally understand it, but for music people, I'm sure you did. But what kind of changes have you seen in the, don't want to get into like funding of arts education and that, you know, that's mm -hmm. a, a rabbit hole, but like yeah. actually in the classroom and the pedagogy, like how have you seen that change over your career in terms of the students and the teaching style, technology, what have you seen that's different from when you first got into the classroom? There is a lot more of the um, physical kinesthetic part and the social emotional aspects of student learning that have come in. In the arts, we were kind of already and always doing that. So yes, we're more, again, intentional on incorporating that now as an arts teacher. But what we do is now gone into other areas of, of teaching. So for instance, we have now a social emotional learning modules that we have to do two times a month with an advisory class at the school. So the kids that you don't necessarily have in class every day. And a lot of the things that you do, I'm like, oh, well, that's a, that's a theater game that we do. That's a, that's a, you know, theater thing that we do to make uh, ensemble working, which is building relationships in social emotional learning and being empathetic and all those things that, you know, theater and, and, and singing and singing next to someone, empathy of hearing that voice next to you and working with them to blend all those things that we were already doing in music and, and the arts now have gone into the rest of education. And that's, that's a huge thing that I've, I've seen. It's like, okay, I'm comfortable with that. I know how to do that. You know, a lot of education programs come and go. The, there was one that I did when I started in Virginia. And then all of a sudden when I was in North Carolina, it came around again. They're like, it's a new great thing. I'm like, no, it isn't. We already did this. Oh, but you know, sometimes those programs, I'm like, yeah, well, I've seen some come and go, but it's interesting now, especially after COVID and the need for connection and to teach students how to connect again, that the arts come right in on it. We're right there. We've been doing it, but you know, we'll help others and we'll keep doing it ourselves. Absolutely. And I mentioned before we started, like I was on stage crew in high school so that uh -huh. was like i had an opportunity because like as a freshman i got like essentially hey you're the scrub you get to go backstage you have to work your way up to the technical stuff and then by the uh -huh. time i could have i chose to stay backstage because that was where the community a lot of my friends were in the shows or they played in the orchestra and like that's how i got to hang out with them i was like i don't want to be isolated up in the light booth <laughs> yes. you know and so i that's a, a really great thing there with that community and kind of a question i wanted to ask you uh, Julie, maybe this is a dumb question, but is there any differences between kind of the classroom one 
programs where it's like, you know, this is a class, it's graded, and just ones that are, it's a club. This is just something they do for fun. Is there a different approach to that mindset as a teacher and advisor? Any any insight on that? Um, oh, yes. The, the, you know, I mean, the, the classroom, you're, you're following standards, you are teaching specific lesson plans, and the club puts on the productions. So you're more production oriented for those. We still try to do some of the warm-ups that we do in the in the class and the connection things to build the ensemble for the stage. But yeah, we're very much more production oriented in the after school groups as opposed to teaching. Trying to teach them ensemble in the basic classes, but you know, some students are there just because they have to have an elective and don't really care. I had oh I had one semester, no, it was a year. Oh yeah, it was a year. I had one student that was put in chorus that did not want to sing, and he sat in that front row the whole year, his arms crossed, and did not open his mouth. Now, he would do any of the written work, and he was very smart musically, but he would not open his mouth to sing. And, you know, so you have to deal with that in the classroom. You have to cater to everyone. Not everyone wants to sing or wants to be in theater. They were placed there. And after school, you're, you're pulling in kids who want to be there or their friends there, so they want to be there. And they're like, oh, this is kind of cool. So yeah, that's a different mindset. Yeah. That's interesting. You know, thinking about just somebody gets placed in this class and like, <laughs> how do you deal with that? You know, is there any strategies that for a future teacher or somebody who's student teaching right now who encounters that? Like, how did you work with that student to get them through? You know, you said they did the written stuff. So how did you, how do you approach a student like that who maybe doesn't want to be there? At, at some point I had to, when we're singing, I had to, in a, in a almost in a way, ignore him. I mean, I would make eye contact with him. It's not ignoring him like that, but there's, there's a point where you can't push anymore. And so you kind of say, okay, you do this work and I'll make this written while everyone else is singing. Because if I concentrate too much on him not singing, it pulls from the students who want to sing. And then they're like, why did you take so much time from me? You know, we could have been singing. It was still getting him to do the work and do the learning. He wasn't doing the singing. Now I didn't give him, you know, credit for participating, for non-participation. So if it was a participation grade, he didn't get it unless he had an alternate assignment. And in so many classes now, we get many students who are non-English speaking and they need a, an elective. And so they're in their English as a second language classes and, and help, but then they're put into the electives and they're like, oh yeah, whatever, do whatever you can with them. And it's, it's, it's difficult. Luckily theater is a lot of pantomime and we communicate that way. And um, I Google, Google translate is a help, but I try to involve them so that, you know, as best I can, some things I say, do it in Spanish, you know, and if you can make us understand what you're doing through your actions, then you've done the assignment. You know, it doesn't have to be in English. So you, you learn to do a lot of adaptation to meet those students that either don't want to do it or have something that is keeping them from doing the project as you want them to do in, in English, say, whether it's disabilities or um, language acquisition. I think that's hopefully really helpful for anybody who's teaching. And, and I'm sure there's other roles, too, where that could be of help thinking customer service roles and sales yes. and other things, too, if you happen to be listening. And speaking of jobs, Julie, you've had many students come through your classroom, through your stage over the years. What advice do you give to your students about leveraging their music, their band, their chorus, their orchestra, their theater production experiences in college, in internships and jobs? We usually talk about their communication skills that they have learned. 
whether it's theater or chorus. Like I said, the collaboration that a choir has to do is its own sort of communication skills, as same as theater, you're making yourself communicate through your acting or through your light design, through your set design. You're still communicating. You're still trying to get an idea across to people. And I tell them the school I'm at now is a law, a law magnet and business magnet. And I was like, theater is a great class for you because you are learning skills in in leadership, in collaboration, and talking in front of people, public speaking, you know, all of these are great for your law and your business. Because I still work so much in the community in the afternoons, evenings, I'm always trying to work and network my students into opportunities so that they can see that the opportunities are out there and what they like to do or what they're studying to do can go beyond the bounds of the school walls and go out into the community and it's like, oh, well, then they know me. Okay. That might help me if I go to the college or, you know, if I want to get that job, that person has already experienced me. They've seen me on stage. And now I want to intern as arts management, uh, front of the house type of things, but I've been on their stage. So I have that edge in for an internship. That is great. And I think particularly for anybody in business and law in these areas, theater is pretty yeah. good training ground, right? Yes, yes, very much so. Speaking of theater, I want to pivot now. You know, we talked about nine to three, whatever your kind of day yeah. like a teacher. And I want to pivot now to the rest of your day and your weekends here because you live a whole other life once the school bell rings for the day. And obviously there's grading and, and all that stuff. We'll, we'll skip past that. <laughs> but you do a lot in the theater space. Um, you do K-12, collegiate, community theater you shared. And you also shared previously with me, you do onstage, offstage backstage and you even said even under the stage um, yes. with the orchestra yeah you said you primarily work as a musical director but can you talk about the different kind of roles that go into especially the kind of these community theater productions and for students who want to maintain that theater experience either in college or in community once they graduate and go off to new york or to charleston or los angeles or wherever in between how they do that and what these kind of roles that they could look for are wow community theater offer so many opportunities to students in college. When I was working with NC State University, I uh, worked as music director for them freelance for 15 years, did their musicals. And so I would work with students and they had um, their theater honors fraternity, APO, is a service fraternity basically. And I coordinated with them because I knew them. And I said, hey, come to my school and and once a month, you guys teach, you guys lead my drama club. You get to choose what you want to do. And so it became a service project for them to do that. And it was a great connection. And I saw a lot of those students then in community theater, or I'd say to them, hey, this show needs a lighting person. I know you do lighting here at the university. So, you know, would you be able to do this? It'd be a great opportunity to kind of branch out on your own and get a feel for what the community theater when you're not dealing with majors and student schedules, but you know, people who come in with passion because they want to do it. It's on their free time. So I love getting them involved that way with the community. And yeah, that's, that's a wonderful thing. So say a student moves to a new town and do they just try to show up and say, Hey, what can I do? Is that, is that a good strategy or is there, that, or is there more nuance to it? Well, that actually is a great, great strategy to say, Hey, what can I do? I tell them, don't put that you only want a specific role unless you know that time-wise you can only commit to a specific role. 
Otherwise, put that you're open to do anything. I'm willing to try backstage because they might say, you know, we don't, you know, we filled the ensemble, but would you, would you like to try assistant stage manager? Would you, you know, I see that you helped out with costumes in high school, or would you be interested in helping out with our costume crew here? Um, just being open to saying that you could do anything will get you so far in so many experiences. And so many students that have done that find a niche then, and they're like, oh, I hadn't thought about costumes. I wanted to be on stage, but I love designing these costumes. And then all of a sudden they're off into a second career. Maybe they decide their master's wants to be in costume design and they were a business major for undergraduate. You know, you just, there's so many opportunities of what they can do, especially in community theaters. And community theaters need people just to come in and say that. I'm open, what can I do? How can I get involved? And I try to help network them as much as I can. Well, if you did any kind of theater uh, in high school, in college, you're doing it now and you want to maintain that, Julie just gave you some great advice on how mm -hmm. to do that. And speaking of all those different levels of that, Julie, obviously you've done a lot of serving as the, the director, the musical production and the leadership roles. Do you take any different perspectives on how you lead in a high school versus a collegiate versus a community town setting? The high school is, is more of the teaching of the elements and what goes behind it. When you get to collegiate, you're uh, fine tuning and you're uh, focusing more on certain areas, whether it's their singing, their performing, um, what they're doing backstage. I tried to involve uh, the university students in the pits, pit orchestras, as much as I could, but also have professional players a few professional players so that they could network with them and they could learn from these people who were doing professional music as their career, even if they, you know, the students didn't want to, but they could have that experience of working with them that way. With the community people on stage, I'm, I'm there because they want to be there. I wouldn't be there, you know, I wouldn't be doing this if they didn't want to be doing it, you know, that they had some experience in high school or college and they just want to continue doing it. And the, the passion that they bring in it, I mean, it's truly driven by their, their passion and their desire to do it, to tell stories and work together. And so many of them, it's so different from what they do in their day job. And it's just such a release for them as an adult to, to go out and be able to do that. So I try to focus on helping them do the best they can do and make sure that they enjoy it. That is really good to hear. And I think there's probably some similarities, like generally at this level, you know, you're, you're doing it because you want to there, mm -hmm. you know, it's not a job. You're doing this out of the, the, the joy of theater, right? Right. Yeah. And even me as a, you know, music director, yes, I have a full-time job as a teacher, but I do all these other things because I love doing them and it, and it feeds my soul to create in a different way that I can't do at the high school. A lot of limitations in public education on what you can and can't do artistically. So community theater offers me those opportunities that I might not be able to do in high school also. So what show would you say, just a curiosity here, what show have, did you like doing the most just in terms, not, you know, thinking of the cast or the script and, and in different things. And what's one show that you haven't been able to direct yet that you wish you could? Ooh, those are good questions. Mm, Cause I always have trouble answering that question about oh, show. Oh, mm, wow. I love doing Once on this Island and I've done it in, three different places and each each time it was different but there's so much in that story and so much diversity in that in that musical I, lo I love I love doing that one 
Next to Normal is a musical that I would do in a heartbeat again. I just, there was something about the music. That one just, yeah, that one hit home. I don't know, just music, everything went together on that one. I just completed um, Bridges of Madison County and it was a gorgeous piece, uh, just a, a gorgeous piece. I, I think I, I tend to like the ones that are really fun to play on the piano, like any Sondheim. I'll do any Sondheim, any Sondheim again, anytime. Um, but you know, the ones that, that touch me on the piano musically, in addition to what's happening on stage as a musical director, those are the ones that I, I tend to do. What have I not done? Wow. Well, I've done a lot. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, you had quite the list on your CV, so. Uh, I would say, I'd, oh, I got to do Sweeney Todd. That was that was fun. Um, <laughs> got to do finally Sweeney Todd. I haven't done as much um, Jason Robert Brown musicals, and that would be fun to direct some of those. Yeah, I, I don't know. There's, I don't like have this list of what I'd like to do. It's kind of like, when something's offered up to me, it's like, then I think, okay, do I want to do this one or do I not want to do it? You know, time-wise, it's like, oh, I haven't done that one. Or yeah, I'll do that one again. Let me, let me see what you're going to do it, you know, do with it. And that's why I, I'll do something, repeat doing a musical. So if you do repeat one, do you get to like, from a creative standpoint, go, hmm, how can I do this different? Is there, you know, something I oh, wish yeah. I had done last time? Is that, is that something you oh, can yes. do? Oh, yes. And so much depends on, uh, like, as a musical director, what the director's vision is, and then because I'm there to support that. And so then what do they think and what are they going towards? And then how can I relook at the music and say, okay, how can we musically support this? And so then you attack it a whole different way, even though it's the same, same music. I think that's what's great about theater is like, there's all these components to it, right? Like you're looking at it, you know, a lot of your answers there and your favorites had to deal with the piano because that's your area of expertise. And I was thinking about my own experience. I've only done a few shows, but I was like, mine was probably weirdly my fair lady. It's not the best play, but I loved that one so much because we had a lot of fun building the sets. We got to get a little crazy. We built like Piccadilly square and Henry Higgins, office and we got real wild with the book titles that you couldn't see from the audience and stuff exactly oh i love doing that (laughs) and like so is you know not my favorite show but that was like my favorite show doing because like oklahoma was like bare bones sets and then we got to go crazy with my fair lady so that was that was a fun time I, i i enjoy doing the black box theater also because it's just this empty black box and you can't necessarily build elaborate sets. So how can you create a world of minimalism or through minimalism? And how can you create this world? And so then you find yourself, you know, using um, different things. I did uh, the marvelous journey of Edward Tulane or miraculous journey of Edward Tulane in in a black box. And we used those ubiquitous theater cubes, those black cubes that we use in theater to become anything, right? They become anything that you want them to to do. So we had like five cubes. And then we created a hoop up in the lighting area. And it actually went around a disco ball that we used because we needed stars. But then we we took huge swaths of of white fabric attached to that hoop. And the actors then took those and it it becomes sails. It becomes a room, um, you know, it drapes. And those, those three long ribbons of white material, and then the lights play off of it, right? And create different moods lighting wise. And 
and how they used, how we ended up using that. Well, that's just, that's unleashes creativity. So much fun to do that way. I'm sure we could talk theater all day, but I do want to ask about a few other things that you that you do, Julie. And one of those things that you talked about early was, you know, you went and learned kind of cross-denominational organ, and you have a pretty cool side gig as a <laughs> church pianist. You yes, go and fill in at whatever church needs it, you or even a synagogue, you said. Yeah. So how did you get into that, and what advice do you have for a student who, you know, is also talented on the piano or the organ and it's like, Hey, maybe I could do that. At Penn state, um, we learned hymn playing as part of our organ lessons. So not just literature, but how to play hymns so that we could be employed as church organists and then moved to Virginia. And I was like, well, I want to keep playing the organs, but you know, it's my second year teaching. So I need to concentrate on that. So I'll just put myself out as a substitute organist and just kind of started there. Then the degree at uh, Shenandoah and the work there opened me up to being really anything. And that was, that was huge as far as my ability then to say, yeah, I can play anywhere. I also had a mentor that, well, two mentors in Oregon that said, don't become a member of a church where you work. <laughs> Only because as an organist, the, the politics of, of the church around you and, and music and how that connects to a, a congregation can get messy. And so they said, you know, if you keep yourself separate, you don't get involved in that. And you can concentrate on the music and feeding the congregation through the music. And then you're not part of that congregation saying, oh, well, oh, wait, you're judging. You know, I'm, I'm a member, too. You don't have that in there. And so that that served me as being able to go to different nominations. And I just pop in and, and I try to make it so that the congregation doesn't really realize that someone else is playing you know, stylistically, there'd be people who can tell, but my idea is not necessarily stylistically, but how can I keep that, their service flowing and not have any kinks like, oops, I forgot to play there. So my goal is to keep it flowing so that, you know, the pastor, the priest, whatever, they don't know that really there's a substitute organist. That is really cool advice. I like that about kind of, you know, this is the church I go to. This is the yeah. ones I play at. Yeah. Yeah. It's very smart. Yeah. I like that. It has served me well. And and you talked, you mentioned about, you know, when you first started teaching, you're like, hey, this is maybe something I can fit in my schedule. You have a lot going on. You do this on top of teaching, on top of serving as musical director at various levels. How do you balance all these demands that really are seven days a week? Yes, I said I freelance my fingers. So I have a color coordinated um, calendar, you know, a calendar on a phone. I can't see it because I found that I had to color coordinate. So I have a color for theater, a color for, you know, education, school a color for churches. And so all I have to do is look at that color and know where I'm going. What, what, what am I going to be right now? Okay, I'm going to be the um, community theater person. Okay, all right. Oh, this is a church thing. Okay. Oh, now I have to play a funeral. Okay. Try to find out something about that person so I can at least have music that maybe would, you know, be, be fit for them. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a weird organizational time thing. When I was at Penn State, I remember my June Miller, the organ professor, would have me talk to other students after my first year there, and she would have them have me talk to them about time management. I don't know that I was really thinking about time management, but I was apparently able to to do it then. I don't really remember what I did specifically, but you know, rehearsing and I'd be in all these ensembles and somehow I was able to do that plus working. Yeah. So yeah, I've always kind of done that. Well, I'm glad that we were able to fit this in. You know, you're probably always going somewhere for these things. And hey, you were able to do this one from home. So that's I know. I know that's wonderful. <laughs> kind of, I bet you're like, oh wow, for once I get to sit in my own house and do do 
do something. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and speaking of going places, one of the things that really jumped out when um, we got connected through a colleague here at Penn State was something that you do over the summer that is really unique and really, really cool. Julie, could you tell us about the War Bonds tour that you helped create and lead and perform in both like what it is what you enjoy about it but also what leadership lessons did you pull from it because you've been doing this for a while you helped start it give us your insights on how you keep this project going yes so um through my community theater and professional theater involvement in raleigh i met a husband and wife team and she um had always sung and performed and someone said hey you know you should sing 1940s music and at the same time, her husband's father was, was dying and he was a World War II vet. And so the husband had done all these recordings. Uh, he interviewed his father and heard stories that he had never heard before because World War II vets didn't talk about what they went through. And they came up with this idea of, hey, we want to do something that has the actual veterans experiences. But we want, you know, um, Serena Ebhart, we want her to sing as in addition to act. So you know, we worked with you in this theater, so we like the way that you play and collaborate. Would you like to be a part of this project? So we started thinking of songs and how we could work them, and they did the research on the letters. And so the whole story is told through the music, which comments on or uh, helps continue the story, and the actual veterans' letters. There's very little that we wrote. It's the veterans' letters and put together to tell the story from the war before the war to the end of the war. And it's a lot of times it's just the three of us on stage. And they realized that, yes, I was playing the piano, but because I was on stage, I happened to be acting, even though I wasn't saying anything. And so I've come kind of this character that I become different characters in their, in their letters. And so they can interact with me. And then they had people, they said, oh, well, you know, you're doing Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy. You should have a, you should have a trumpet. And, and, you know, you should have like the bass and drums with it. So they said, hey, Julie, can you add bass and drums? So now we get into orchestration and adding that. I got some big band charts and pulled from them. So we can tour with just three of us, two actors and me on the piano. We can add bass and drums. We can add bass, drums, and saxophone. We can add bass, drums, and trumpet for all of us, whatever we do. And we ended up, you know, we went from North Carolina, a lot of performances in North Carolina, and then we started spreading out. And then we're like, oh, we've made it to the Mississippi River. Okay. And then we made it past, oh, now we're made it to the Missouri River. And in 2008, I had actually left teaching to work at a church full time in 2001 and just wanted to uh, focus on that where I could actually do theater and music and organ all in one church and um, was doing that. Well, this war bond started building and building and I was needing more time away as we toured across the country. And so I decided to go totally freelance in 2008 and we hit uh, 15 venues in 13 states, I think in five weeks. Um, we were just on the road, crisscrossing the United States and we would hire in musicians wherever we went. So as leadership, I had to teach these people our show in two hours and have them play it and lead them in, yes, for performance. Um, you know, we send them the music and, but, you know, come in and I'd have to teach them the flow. And then we'd 
do a couple songs with the singers so they could see what was happening. And then it's like, okay, now you're just going to have to watch me. Here we go. And we sometimes incorporate actual letters from the communities that we're in. So that's a wonderful connection with the people there. And it's just been so wonderful seeing the United States, hearing these stories. And these letters, they never grow old. And they're stories that continue to need to be told. We incorporate stories of women in World War II and of minorities in World War II. But, you know, we have the actual letters, you know, and we've done the research. And the funny thing is that that honors thesis and learning how to do the research, it paid off. It's still, you know, something that I had to use in creating this research on finding the music, you know, and the orchestrations that I wanted to do. So it's, it's a piece that will stays very much alive every time we do it. And we get touched by it differently. Sometimes it's just a different letter hits you and, or there's just the, vi the vibration that you get back from the audience and, and how, how they're feeling. But I just, I cherish being able to do this and still be able to do it. And um, yes, I have to take sometimes days off of school to do it. And different schools have dealt with it differently over time on whether they consider it professional development because I'm out teaching in these communities or whether they say, oh, no, you're performing and you're getting paid. So you don't get paid for school today. So, you know, it, it differs, but it's, it's something that oh, I won't give up until we have to bury it or ourselves. That whole story is incredible. Use that honors yeah. experience. Yeah. And, you know, we know what we're talking about and lots of different people, women, people of color and others, a lot of indigenous Native American folks obviously yes. contributed to those efforts in World War II and other wars in, mm -hmm. in throughout our history. So glad that you're making sure all these different stories are told. If a student wants to check this out, like, you know, see if it's coming near where they live or where a relative lives in the summer, how can they check that out and see if, you know, they're able to go see a show? Yes, it's actually we're, we're available year round. We tend to get booked around Veterans Day and Memorial Day, but sometimes in the summer and just any time of the year, the company is EBZB Productions at www.ebzb.org. Their theater takes a lot of things like that that help teach, though you don't realize you're being taught through the theater. And it, like I said, it's a husband and wife team with this um, out of Apex or Raleigh, North Carolina. And um, yeah, they can go on there and um, check out war bonds and other shows that are there we also actually filmed for um, pbs and it's been distributed so sometimes you know around veterans day you can go on your local pbs and say oh hey there's war bonds and it's still it's still out there that way too that's awesome that it's documented and, and continues to live there yeah and and so you mentioned touring and one last kind of specific question for you before we do our wrap-up questions. Julie, you shared that not only are you involved in school and church and theater and the War Bonds tour, but you're also able to drive some vehicles to those locations <laughs> that probably most of our scholars might not be able to at least yet. So can you tell us how those fit into your professional and personal interests? The motorcycle, the, the smallest thing on my um, the driver's license endorsement is um, something that I kind of latched onto with my husband and gained an interest. And I started riding behind him. And then I'm like, hey, it'd be fun to be right next to him on my own bike. So I was like, okay, let me go take that course because, you know, I'm not averse to taking lessons and classes, right? So I was like, oh, let me take that. So, all right, I got my motorcycle endorsement, got my own motorcycle. 
I even rode the motorcycle to church, which threw some people off, like, that's our organist coming in on a motorcycle. Um, <laughs> so then um, did that. We actually um, did Route 66 last summer, and that was a wonderful trip, three weeks on motorcycle, again, crossing the country and getting to see so much of it that way. And then as a teacher, as a theater teacher, you tend to go on competitions and trips and a lot of the competitions are on weekends and it's hard to find bus drivers when you go on these trips. You have to pay them to get their own room. You have to pay their hourly wage. You have to pay their meals and then plus the bus costs. And that gets quite expensive. So one principal said, hey, why don't you get your CDL? I'm like, okay, I'll get my CDL. So I went and took the classes. And it's funny because the test, not the written test at the DMV, but the test that um, I guess our county gave where you had to basically learn a script, a theater script, that you had to say in exactly the right order, exact things while you're pointing to things underneath the bus and on the bus and say, well, this is this, and I look for this and this, and then, you know, I won't drive it if it's this way. And uh, it was it's a whole script of uh, things that you have to learn and memorize and, and do. So it made the driving easy, even, you know, parallel parking a school bus in some ways is easier than the theater script that you had to learn to do it. <laughs> that is awesome. And just goes to show you that lifelong learning can look a lot of different ways. You've taken master's programs that you've accomplished at some great schools in Virginia and North Carolina, and then getting your CDL, driving yep. the school bus. That is that is awesome. But what would you say, Julie, as we go into our last couple questions here that I ask everybody who comes on following the gong, what would you say is your biggest success to date? I, I mean, War Bombs, the, the creation of that, seeing it come to life, seeing it stay alive, bringing it to communities across the country. I mean, we made it all the way to the West Coast and we performed out there and up in Maine and down in Florida. That, that's, that's something that I'm, I'm inordinately proud of being a part of that. As you should be, because based on what you've described, it sounds like an incredible accomplishment and kind of like an adult version of a thesis in a way. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that is. But on the flip side, obviously, that's a great accomplishment. But what would you say has been a, a big transformational learning moment or mistake that you've made and, and what you took from that? I think when I when I was teaching and I tried to force something that maybe I wanted and that my ensemble or production or whatever didn't want and I tried to force it and, and it just doesn't work. And that's when I, I truly learned the collaborative, you know, collaboration does so much, not, not only for learning yourself and but learners and for how you teach. For instance, at Penn State, I give back as an alumni. So I have a fund and endowment. Well, I guess it's a fund, not endowment, but I wanted to give back to the university. And so I have it in my will. So part of, part of my money will go back to Penn State then, but I wanted to give something now uh, that gives to the students and I can see it working. It's not like something that's working after I'm dead. And Penn State really worked with me on, you know, I have so many interests. What do I want to do? And collaboration is a huge thing. And maybe it was learning from trying to force something that didn't work. But I, so it's a collaborative pianist. When I was at Penn State, we didn't, you know, get paid to accompany the voice majors. But I just loved the company and, you know, accompanying choirs and accompanying singers. Sometimes the, the, singers would pay you or the instrumentalists could pay you a little bit. We're, we're all students, you know, so it's more of the, I'm learning from it. I didn't 
necessarily care if I got paid, but looking back, it's really like, yeah, that was a lot, you know, a lot of time. It would have been nice to earn some money doing that. So the fund helps, whether it helps them go to a professional development to learn, um, whether it just pays for the time playing for other people, or does it help them with travel for something, you know, that they can learn from. So that's what the fund does. And I think it, it all comes back to that collaboration, which I also did learn at Penn State and even back in you know, in high school and all, all those opportunities for working with people and making it happen. Absolutely. And we definitely really appreciate that, both thinking the, the current piece as well as the legacy piece with the estate commitment. So thank you for that, Julie. And definitely collaboration is how you even ended up here. I asked some of my colleagues in arts and architecture and I said, hey, the arts are woefully underrepresented on this show. Do you have any cool and scholar grads that I can talk to? And that's how we got connected. So yeah. Yeah. Um, and if you're curious on how the other side of that works, you know, obviously, Julie, you're a donor. If you're curious on the fundraising side, go back. I'm going to shameless plug my own show here. Go back and listen mm -hmm. to episode 13 uh, wow. with my boss's boss, Tina Hennessy, who's a scholar alumna and an AVP here. You can learn what it's like to be a gift officer and how yeah. people work. Uh, with donors like Julie and, and make that happen. Yes. Uh, so collaboration has been a great theme in our conversation today. And one that comes up in every episode and including today in our conversation is mentorship. Mm -hmm. Are there any suggestions you have on how to approach mentorship that you've gleaned? I know we've talked a little bit, it's come up here and there throughout the conversation, but what recommendations do you have for students and particularly aspiring teachers on seeking out mentorship? Uh, just go to the teacher that you admire that then inspires you. And it could be, maybe you're not necessarily thinking, oh, I like, you know, I want to learn their teaching. You might just say, I love how they teach this, you know, subject and I love this subject. So, you know, get me involved in that. And it might not be directed towards, I want to learn how to write lesson plans for this thing, but more, you know, how can I inspire? How can I get these ideas across in different ways? And you, you just have to look for those people and just go up and ask them. You'd be surprised at how many people have not been asked that would love to share Part of what they get through the sharing is they learn from it because they see the student learning, you know, the, the, their men mentee, they, they get to see them learning and they're like, oh, oh, I could try that now too. And again, you end up collaborating as a mentor with, with the person that you're mentoring. So yeah, just go ask. That is that is really helpful. I think many people have said that, but if this is your first time listening, that is that sometimes is all it takes. Yeah. And you've name dropped a few people, but chance to formally shout them out. Are there any professors or friends from your scholar days that you want to give a shout out to here at the tail end of our conversation? Well, June Miller was huge. Um, she was my organ professor and mentor, and she helped me. And even though I wasn't, you know, I was student teaching, but I had something come up, and she stood up for me. And um, so as as a mentor. She also stood up for me as a friend at that point because we had reached that point and we're still friends and we still talk and I still ask her things and uh, try to meet up with her whenever I get to Penn State and, and see her again. Uh, she's re retired, but um, still very much a part of my life. And I love that. Coralie, Dr. Uh, D. Doug Miller. I got to tour uh, Europe twice with him and a community town and gown choir that he put together. Huge experiences for me. Wouldn't trade them for the world. Those were... Oh. Wonderful. Educationally, uh, Joanne Rakowski, um, Dick Bundy helped me out with the, the music ed classes. And they, they were, again, they worked with me to help them, help me make a class that worked for me and uh, worked for the scholars program. It, it, was, it was wonderful that way. 
Yeah. So again, you know, go to your professor's office hours, come talk to us in the Honors College, find those people. Everybody has, you know, those advocates, those mentors, those resources. So, you know, Julie, you have your faults, so you just shout it out. And hopefully you listening have yours or you're in the process of finding them. So yes. uh, let us know how we can help if you need that. So as we're wrapping up, we've had a really great conversation here today, Julie. Is there anything I didn't ask about that you wanted to leave some advice for students that maybe just didn't come up organically in, in our conversation? Um, no, I think that this pretty much all kind of came out because it all kind of ties in together. Like you said, collaboration is a major theme. Excellent. If a scholar wanted to reach out to you and connect and ask you more questions or find out more about the War Bonds Tour, what it's like to be a music teacher, to be a musical director for theater, or any of the other really cool stuff you're doing, or even getting your CDL, <laughs> how can they connect with you? I do have a website, which <clears throat> I need to update, but it is fingertipsmusic.org. Um, and that it has some of the varied things uh, that I do on there, including war bonds and connections to that with the organ um, acapella singing group that I was in. I taught piano lessons for years, uh, private piano lessons for years. So that's all kind of in there. I am out on social media in Instagram and Facebook. I'm on LinkedIn now professionally that way. I don't consider that social media. Yeah, that it's one's kind of weird. It's yeah, like it's professional. Kind of social, kind yeah. of professional. Yeah, that one's yeah. in a weird, in a weird space. But yeah, as a teacher, I try to show the all the theater things that I'm involved in and uh, highlight them as we're working on each different project. And of course, you know the cats. I've got to show my cats all the all the time. So social media is <laughs> fun for that. Yes, the dog and cat pictures. Yes, that yes. Is probably one of the the best uses for them at this yes. point. <laughs> <laughs> well, you heard how you can connect with her. And Julie, a final question that I ask everybody is, if you were a flavor of Berkey Creamery ice cream, which would you be? And not what's your favorite, but which would you be? And most importantly, as a scholar alumna, why would you be that flavor? I would be Crazy Charlie Sunday Swirl because, well, I have a crazy schedule. Many people think I'm crazy for doing all that I do, but it's all these flavors put together, right? All swirled up. They're all working together at the same time. You never know which way it's going to go as it swirls. So that's why I would be. I think that is a great answer. And that is the first time we've heard that one. So that is a new one, it. folks. Love it. <laughs> Well, I really appreciate our conversation today. We touched on a wide range of things. We didn't even get into entrepreneurship with how you go about these side hustles and piano lessons and all the oh. things. That's a conversation for another day, but really appreciate all of your insights on teaching, on theater and, and everything, which in between in the arts. Julie, thank you so much for joining us here today. Well, thank you for having me. I've, I've enjoyed it greatly. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, scholars, for listening and learning with us today. We hope you will take something with you that will contribute to how you shape the world. This show proudly supports the Schreier Honors College Emergency Fund, benefiting scholars experiencing unexpected financial hardship. You can make a difference at raise.psu.edu forward slash Schreier. Please be sure to hit the relevant subscribe, like, or follow button on whichever platform you are engaging with us on today. You can follow the college on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn to stay up to date on news, events, and deadlines. If you have questions about the show or are a Scholar alum who'd like to join us as a guest here on Following the Gone, please connect with me at scholaralumni at psu.edu. Until next time, please stay well, and we are 